All right. Well, if you brought your Bibles today, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 3. We're in a series. If you missed any of these, the first four messages we preached in this series are online. And the series is called Good News for the Not So Good. And this is the fifth message in the series called Give Yourself Room to Grow. Uh, how many know that God wants us as his followers to continue to grow and to work out our salvation in fear and trembling? In other words, we're maturing. We're hopefully becoming more Christ-like, that being the goal, Romans 8, 29. Well, as I said, we're continuing in this series today, looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Uh, the, the, I'm reading from the New International Version. I'll be referring to the ESV, King James, throughout this as well. But verses 1 through 9, the Apostle Paul writing these words. Interesting, the very first word, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them brothers, and he says, Yeah, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. And, not, and he says, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you, come, you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes all things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor." For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so give yourself room to grow. If you were here in the previous uh, messages we preached up to this time two weeks ago, I preached on Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday, the last week in May. And then last week, Pastor Tim Greaves did a great job preaching, filling in for while, while we we're on vacation. And... Uh, uh, but, but if you were here in chapter 2, you recall that Paul made a distinction between two kinds of people. There was the natural man, and then there was the spiritual man. So he had two different classes, if you will, natural versus spiritual. In other words, one without the spirit and one with the spirit. One is lost, one is saved. Well, in this chapter, Paul makes a further distinction between two groups of people. And this distinction among those who, this is a distinction between those who have already experienced new life in Christ, but, but there's also those that are uh, uh, in a different place spiritually. Uh, he calls them brothers, but also calls them worldly. You know, one group is moving on to maturity, he's writing about, growing in their faith, doing the work of God, you know, advancing the kingdom of God. The other group is stalled in what he calls infancy. Both are believers, interesting enough, but while one is thriving in their walk, with, with God in their faith, the other is really floundering and has become ineffective. Uh, although born-again believers receive the new life of the Spirit, they retain the sinful nature with its evil inclinations. 
And honestly, the sinful nature that remains in, in us cannot be made good. It must be crucified. It must be put to death uh, by the Spirit, through the Spirit's power and grace. Uh, we must overcome through the Spirit's help. Uh, not all Christians make the required effort, though, to fully overcome the sinful nature. So in addressing, then, the Corinthians, Paul notes that some of them are behaving in a worldly, in a fleshly, in a carnal or unspiritual manner. I use all four words there, worldly, fleshly, carnal, unspiritual, all meaning one and the same. In other words, they were compromising with the world. They were compromising with the sinful nature. They were not forsaking their evil practices. And what had happened is that they were tolerating sin and really the world's philosophy. And so Paul, being the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote to them addressing this church in Corinth with this problem. Uh, Just a side note here. Uh, Anytime you and I attempt to experience God's blessings while refusing to separate from the world and its evil ways, we are always going to have major problems. In other words, you can live life your way or you can live life God's way. When you live life your way, life doesn't work out the way God intends. Putting it very simply. And so we have two classes of people, the unspiritual man, the natural man versus the spiritual man. And under the spiritual man, there's a further distinction, mature versus worldly. All right, mature versus the carnal. And so in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul addresses this group of flounderers, which appears to make up the majority of the members of the church in Corinth. And he says this in verse 2, repeating, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, Paul uses the word worldly there. Uh, I know when I got saved back uh, over 40 years ago, and when when you mention worldliness, uh, this is what I remember like 40 plus years ago, worldly people back in the 80s would listen to the wrong kind of, of, of music, they would, they would uh, watch the wrong kind of TV programs, or they went to movies. I remember as a kid growing up, you know, we didn't go to that many movies. I remember going to Jaws in Sheldon, Iowa when I was a kid, and then I also remember getting saved and going to a few movies and being chewed out for that, and it's like, well, if Jesus comes when you're watching that movie, you know, it's like, well, what if he doesn't? Then I can finish watching the movie, you know, that's, that's, you know, it's kind of like the old phrase, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do, you know. That was kind of the mindset when I got saved. Uh, it was more of the outward appearance of things and not really what I would probably term true holiness. Uh, and so that's not really what Paul's talking about here. The word worldly in the Greek language is sarkinos, S-A-R-K-I-N-O-S, and it literally means fleshly, of the flesh as the ESV puts it so well, people of the flesh, or as the King James Bible says, carnal. In verse 4, the word is translated as being a mere man or a, a mere human being. In other words, it's the opposite of being spiritual. 
it refers to a certain kind of attitude and behavior that literally prevents believers from moving forward and upward in the Christian life. As I said, God wants to change us once we've been saved. God wants to transform us, you and I, so we are more and more like Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. That is the goal, to be transformed into his image. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, since they are still like infants in their faith, he had to give them the spiritual equivalent of milk, uh, for they were not ready for solid food. Now, I, for one, uh, I still like drinking milk, especially chocolate milk with a good breakfast, a good breakfast being what we had yesterday, but we had no chocolate milk, but it was okay because it was a great breakfast. The food was hot, it was wonderful, and there was way too much of it, uh, but it was good. But uh, I, I still like drinking milk, so I haven't been weaned yet, if you will, all right? It's like, anyway. Uh, the writer of Hebrews echoes kind of what Paul's saying here in Hebrews chapter 5. 12 through 14, he says, the writer says, by this time you ought to be teachers, yet you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone, he says, who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food, he writes, is for the mature. So basically here, the writer of Hebrews is saying pretty much what Paul is talking to the Corinthians about, this, con this condition of, of not going on in their faith, this condition of what I would term stunted growth, carnality. And honestly, if Paul dealt with it, if the writer of Hebrews dealt with it, it's a condition that's not all that rare, all right? What, in other words, Christians must resist the tendency and the temptation toward worldliness. I remind us, friends, we are not of this world. We are just passing through. We are strangers, and some say, yeah, some stranger than others, all right? But Jesus himself warns that any church that tolerates within its fellowship the world's unrighteous practices or distortion of biblical truth are going to be rejected by him and lose their place in the kingdom of God. We also saw, if you recall, in our recent study that we just ended two weeks ago in Revelation on Wednesday nights when Jesus wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, seven letters he wrote, he had John write for him, and he was addressing these seven churches in Asia Minor, five of the seven that, that were not faring out so well. They needed some correction. I mean, five of the seven churches were called to bring correction. Many of them, he called them to repentance. There was spiritual neglect. There was deadness. You know, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. There was a departing from biblical faith. There was lukewarmness, Laodicea. They thought they were increased with goods, had need of nothing, and yet Jesus says, don't you realize that you're poor, pitiful, blind, wretched, poor, and naked, or whatever. Uh, so, so they were not doing well. Uh, some churches tolerated some immoral church leaders, and so basically there was a call from Christ himself to his church to repent and get right with God. Well, Paul, like Jesus writing the seven letters to, to the seven churches in Revelation, Paul speaks very directly to the Corinthians telling them, hey guys, you are not where you should be. 
You're not where you ought to be. You're not nearly as far along as you think you are. And Paul would add, and it's not my fault or anybody else's fault. It's your fault, all right? You're doing this to yourself, he says. He's telling them that they are literally sabotaging their own spiritual growth. Now, how are they doing this? Verse 3, for since there is jealousy and quarreling, some translations use envy, envying and strife among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul. Yet another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? As I've mentioned in weeks gone by, there were a number of divisions in the church in Corinth. Uh, each associated, as you recall, well, I'm part of this group, I'm part of that group, whatever. You know, we had Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Jesus himself, and each group tended to look down on the others. Well, I follow Paul. I like Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching is better than Apollos' teaching. You know, we, we, we get into this kind of creating our own conflict, if you will, by doing that. And so Paul's saying, you know something? You're not going to move forward to the next level spiritually until you leave behind the pettiness and the petulance and begin to act like, for, for lack of a better word, begin to act like grown-ups. Begin to act like you've, you've got it together, you know, not, not you know, putting on a false front or whatever, but for lack of a better word, he was, saying, like, he was simply saying, guys, church, Corinth, it's time for you to grow up. A side note, if you ever want to read a good book, David Ravenhill wrote a good book years ago called For God's Sake, Grow Up. And it's a challenge to the church to go on to discipleship and spiritual maturity. Well, for me, thinking about all this, it's somewhat difficult to preach a sermon on this passage for a church like ours because we don't experience and have not experienced for a long time now the disunity and the division that was common in Corinth. And I can't tell you how happy that makes me. It always has not always been that way, but I'm glad we are for the most part, a church that tends to get along and, and enjoys each other's company and fellowship, and I applaud you, church, for that. However, we can't read a passage like this, and I can't, without thinking personally, because I like to take things personal when I'm reading God's Word. God, how does this apply to me? And I would say, you know, how, how do these verses apply to me individually? Am I still worldly? Am I still carnal? Am I still fleshly, a mere man? Am I acting as a mere man? Are there areas in my life in which I'm being petty and petulant? Am I doing things or saying things that cause division? Am I holding myself back from what God has intended for me and, and what God has for me to do as well. You see, every Christian should ask themselves these questions. Are there areas in my life, are there areas maybe in our church, whatever, that we're small-minded on? Are there areas where we're holding ourselves back or others back? I mean, we have to be real and ask ourselves these questions because God's Word was, was not merely, merely to inform us. God's Word is to transform us. It's to change us. And so we have to be real. And honestly, there shouldn't be a time when you and I read this without saying, God, forgive me. God, help me here. 
You know, God worked, worked that scripture in my life. I'm not seeing it bring, you know, bring the fruit that it needs to or whatever. And so today, as, as we look at these what I'll call sinful attitudes that stood in the way of unity and growth among the church in Corinth, I want us to consider three things that we can do to make sure that we are not behaving, as Paul said, as mere men, as fleshly, carnal, sarkinos individuals. What I'm going to share with you today, I believe, will help you in your personal life. It's going to help you in your work life. It's going to help you in your family life. It's going to help you in your social life. And it's going to help you as well in your church life. So here are three things we need to do to avoid this trap of holding ourselves back. First one is this. Number one, let's make an effort to move away from petty conflicts. Let's make an effort to move away from petty conflicts. Now, the theological differences between Paul and Apollos and Cephas probably didn't amount to all that much. Maybe a difference in approach, maybe a difference in style or a certain emphasis, whatever. Maybe even some minor differences in ideology, since none of these gentlemen were infallible. However, they were, for the most part, on the same page theologically. And yet their followers used these minor differences to create major quarrels among themselves to the point that they were literally unable to function as a loving Christian fellowship. Friends, you and I need to be sure that we're not guilty of the same thing. I've asked this question before in times gone by. How many of you are convinced that if Jesus Christ himself came into this church on a Sunday morning, revealed who he was, and began to speak, that you would be absolutely convinced that he would bring unity, everybody would be in full agreement, it would unify this entire city, the entire metro area, and so on. I mean, he's the son of God. All controversy would be put aside if Jesus Christ himself was here. Well, before you answer that, let me read you some scriptures. John 7, uh, verse 12. There was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. He's leading the multitude astray. So they accused Christ of leading the multitudes astray. Much grumbling, it says, not just a little. Major controversy. Imagine Jesus Christ himself having such a diverse reaction among people. Or we go to Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. This man drives out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Well, that's borderline blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You are attributing to the devil the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, blasphemy there, serious charge, Matthew 12, 24. In John 10, 19 and 20, the Jews were again divided, and many of them, not just a few, many of them said, he, speaking of Jesus, is demon-possessed and raving mad. Wow, how many know they missed it? All right. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man demon-possessed. 
Once again, we have division. Many of them, not just one. And so really, when Christ was ministering, there was a polarization of different camps. He's insane, he's crazy, not just, well, I'm not sure, but outright attacks on him. Not, well, maybe his doctrine isn't quite right. Friends, this was major controversy. In, in, in uh, John 7, 43, it says, the people were divided because of Jesus. Now, I've said all that to say that if, if people were divided over Jesus then, we can expect people to be divided today as well. But let's do what we can to move away from pettiness. Bottom line is this. When Jesus Christ comes, he upsets everything as we know it. Friends, you can expect controversy when God begins to move by his spirit. Why? Because his ways are not our ways. Let me give you a few little examples. In my library I have, in my fighting cabinets, they have two big four-door fighting cabinets. And it used to be years ago I would, I would file every sermon I preached and they just got so full I can't keep them all. So I stopped that years ago. But one of my thickest files I have, biggest file I have is on revival and I love love still do love reading on revival uh, the revivals of old of yesteryear uh, the the Cane Ridge revival if you've never heard of it look it up check it out uh, it's just phenomenal what God did but back in the day uh, Wesley and Whitfield were two of the greatest preachers in England and yet they were divided over the move of God. There were manifestations in Wesley's meaning, but not in Whitfield's, and so they became divided in how they viewed this. Uh, how many have heard of G. Campbell Morgan? A couple of you have. Uh, I, have his, I have his books and his sermons. I mean, multiple volumes of his sermons in my library as well. Here's the thing about G. Campbell Morgan. Love the guy. I've read his sermons. I've probably even preached some of them over the years. But he said this of the Azusa Street Revival. The Azusa Street Revival is the last vomit of Satan. Think about that. That's where we got our beginning at, basically, in the Pentecostal movement. All right? And so uh, how many know that G. Campbell Morgan missed God? Rid of a time when Andrew Murray loved the guy, loved his books. Andrew Murray shouted, Be quiet! in a prayer meeting. All right, a little different. All right, caused division. During the Hebrides revival, A.W. Pink, again, a, a man that I highly respected, I have his commentaries and his, his, his commentary on John is excellent, and even some of the Old Testament commentaries. But he was looking over Scotland and uh, Scotland and the islands and said, This is not a move of God. He missed it because, man, God moved so powerfully in Wales, matter of fact, in that revival where the miners had to retrain their animals because once these gentlemen got saved, their language changed and they were no longer cursing the animals in the mines and the animals didn't know what they were saying, you know, the directions that they were giving them. So the animals had to be retrained as the, as the miners' language cleaned up. Matter of fact, in the Wales revival, uh, I know Todd and, and Andrew are here today, if they're listening online, but in the Wales revival, they had to lay off police officers because no one was committing crime. True story. And now that's when God moves by his spirit. 
I'm thankful for police officers and for law and order and everything else. I am 100% in your court in favor, and I thank God for you. You are God's, God's appointed service people. But, but, but basically, it's like we can do all we can, but when God moves, God changes the heart. And that's what we're after. Now, I said all that to say, how many know that well-intentioned spiritual people can miss God on occasion? be it G. Campbell Morgan or A.W. Pink or, or Wesley or, or whoever it might be. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he never settled on one particular way of doing things. In other words, he didn't want us to put him in a box. He never stereotyped his ministry. Let me give you an example for, for that in healing. Uh, years ago, and this is aging me too and some of you as well, but I showed a video here years ago called The Strange Ways of God by Bishop Joseph Gardington. Back then he was the pastor of Covenant Church in Pittsburgh and he preached a message during the Pensacola Revival Times called The Strange Ways of God. I have since taken it off of VHS, if you know what that is, like 8-track. I put it onto DVD, which is like yeah, I won't go there. But anyway, but uh, he, he wanted to help people understand that sometimes God does things and we can't make sense out of it. And, and he was talking about how Jesus healed people. And he gives the illustration in John chapter 9, Jesus, there was a man that was blind and Jesus spit on the ground and made some mud and put it on the man's eyes and then says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, I wouldn't have to wash if you didn't put this mud and this dung and this whatever you made this, the mud spill out of, you know. But, but, he, but, but, but the end result, the guy was healed. He could see. In Mark chapter 8, it says in verse 23, he spit on the man's eyes. He spit. Jesus spit on the man's eyes. Mark chapter 7. Jesus put his fingers in a man's ears. I've never done that praying for you. I probably never will do that praying for you. All right? But it says Jesus put his fingers in a man's ears, but then notice this. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. The idea that his spittle landed on the guy's tongue. Now think about this. John chapter 9, the man was blind. Mark chapter 8, the man was blind. They didn't see it coming. This guy was not blind. He saw it coming. Imagine his first words after he was prayed for. His first words, (laughs) Oh, I can speak. Sometimes we miss the miracle because God's not doing it the way we think he ought to do it. For example, having a little fun with this this morning. Hang on, I'm dry too. If I was to say this morning, how many of you want healing in your eyes, in your ears? Hands go up. How many are wearing glasses? How many are wearing contacts? How many have hearing aids? Let's have prayer this morning. (laughs) Who's going to come? You get what I'm saying. There are strange things in the Bible. I, don't, I, I kind of make fun with that. But, but, but we must remember, church, that the means and the methods aren't as important as the miracle or the end result. 
I mean, houses shook in the Bible. Tongues like as a fire. I covered that two weeks ago. People acting as if they were drunk. People coming out of the graves at the resurrection, walking into town. I mean, Luke chapter 5, 26. We have seen strange things today. You see, the New Testament is very dramatic, and I can't explain it all, but I know if God can make a bug's behind light up, God can do anything. Amen? God knows how to reach us. God knows how to, how to, how to touch us. I heard, I heard, I forgot who it was, but I heard years ago, sometimes God will offend your mind to get at your heart. Sometimes he'll do things beyond what we, what we, we think he should do to get at our hearts. And, 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 but I know that God, God knows how to get a hold of us. I know God knows how to get a hold of our hearts. I also know that different people respond differently. If I was to have a pencil up here, which I do, I don't have a feather, but I was to blow on each of those, there'd be a different response on each of those items, all right? So we, we oftentimes say, the, well, why didn't God just do everything decently and in our order so we could understand it all? I mean, why did Jesus heal a lame man on the Sabbath and then tell him to carry his mat, which was forbidden by the law? Why did Jesus do things that had no biblical precedent in the Hebrew scriptures? One of the things I've learned and has helped me throughout my, my years as a Christian, and I learned this in the Pensacola Revival from Dr. Michael Brown, he had a good rule of thumb that said this, the fact that a particular phenomenon or manifestation isn't recorded in the Word as long as it's not contrary to the Word, in other words, as long as it's merely extra-biblical as opposed to being unbiblical, does not necessarily bring it into question. Yes, you weigh it out by the Word of God. Yes, you weigh it out with the, with, with with the Bible, but we, we ought not, as Jonathan Edwards says, we ought not to limit God where God has not limited himself. In other words, let God be God. Let God do what he wants to do, and we don't have to understand it all in that sense. See, God is a God of variety. His nature never changes, yet God is continually doing new things. In John 21, 25, and there were many other things that Jesus did. If they were written down, I suppose the whole world would not have the room for the books that were written. It might be cool someday in heaven when we get to watch the video of all the other miracles that Jesus did or all the other things that Jesus said or open the volumes and volumes and volumes of, of books that we could possibly read or know. Or I don't know how it's going to be, but, but uh, that's going to be, I think, awesome someday to see what we have not been given in God's Word. But here's the deal. You and I have the tendency to make God a one-size-fits-all. If I respond this way, then you must respond that way. Or we like the Methodist style. We like the charismatic style or whatever. See, we reduce God down to a formula. And church, we can't do that. Remember how Naaman was healed of leprosy in 2 Kings 5? Elisha sent a messenger, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh is going to be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. I thought there were going to be lights and cameras and I thought I was going to be on TBN. I mean, this isn't the way I thought God was going to do it. And he would have missed out. And he was angry because he thought it should be done a, a certain way. 
Bottom line is, friends, and I'll move on here, but the work of God is complex, and there's various ways in which God's work, and and God's work, and later on in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God. You even recall when, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist? Oh, John, yeah, John came preaching repentance, kind of of a hard message. Well, some say you're Elijah. They saw the power, the power, the miracles, the uh, the supernatural. Others say you're Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. They saw the compassion of Christ. Let the little children come unto me. You know, how he wept over Jerusalem. And so John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, I'm simply saying the, uh, just as the work of God is complex, people see different aspects, if you will, of, of who Christ is and what he's come to do. It's been said even today that those who miss a current move of God are those who have been touched in a previous move of God. Because we have the idea, well, God moved that way back in 1950 or 1960 or 1970. The Jesus people, you know, movement, whatever. God, you know, so basically, church, I'm just saying, simply saying this. Don't miss God. You know, part of being a spiritual grown-up is being able to accept the idea that someone at some time might have an opinion different than my own, and I'm okay with that. All right, I don't. In other words, I don't have to think I'm right about everything all the time. One of the things I heard Pastor Nancy, our uh, former children's pastor, who's now with Jesus, she would say over and over again, "There's a lot of right ways to do right things, and my way doesn't have to be the only way." That kind of thing. I saw this cartoon that pretty much captures the spirit of what I'm saying here, and you can see it on the PowerPoint there. And the cartoon simply goes. A man is at his computer and his wife calls out, Are you coming to bed? He says, I can't. This is important. What, she asks. He responds, Someone is wrong on the internet. (laughs) Ever been there? Ever lose sleep because of being there? (laughs) I know at times the temptation to respond to people on social media is great. The temptation to debate people on the social media pages is great, but uh, the older I get, the more I'm saying, and I've done this, it's proven nothing. Uh, Honestly, it's not worth my time. It's not worth my, I say it this way, it's not worth my chase. It's just not worth it. And in the past, there's been times where some of the best responses I've given to people, I didn't push send. I just erased it. Doesn't need to be said. It's okay. And I'm just saying, it's time to move on, and that's okay. All right? I read of two families who couldn't be more different from one another. One family was prone to disagree with one another on life's most important topics, being football, religion, and politics. And when they were together, they often engaged in spirited debate about these topics. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, how could you think that? Are you out of your mind? And sometimes you'll hear, you know, that's a good point. I never thought of that. And then in the end, there'd be lots of laughter and a lot of love in that room. The other family was much different. 
They all attend the same kind of church. They all support the same political candidates. They root for the same team. And you dare not say anything that might challenge any notion that everyone in the group holds dear. I mean, you can talk politics as long as it's their politics. But if you say one wrong thing, they'll say, well, let's just not talk about politics, okay? You know. Now, let me ask you, which of these two families would you say best embodies a, a spiritually mature culture of unity? I think family one. You know, it's okay, church, we can agree to disagree, but let's not become disagreeable, all right? Being of one mind does not mean that everyone has the same opinion about everything all the time. It simply means that everyone has the same commitment to seeking the truth and learning the truth while supporting one another in love. This is why John Wesley said this, Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. With all doubt, we may. In other words, we have to, all right? We have to be unified here. He says, herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. Even in the book of Romans, Paul said, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Man, what a great attitude to have. In other words, I will not be the reason there is conflict among us. I will not be the reason there is disunity in our circle. Uh, if we're going to put an end to these, this, what I call spiritual, uh, this, this uh, uh, spiritual self-sabotage, let's move away from petty conflicts. All right? Second thing, and it may, might sound like I'm shifting gears, but I'm still on track on this topic. Number two, let's place no limit on the lessons we can learn from others. Paul, Paul writes this in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Now, there were those in the Corinthian church who would say, I'm a Paul. And man, they would hang on every word Paul spoke. There are those that said, why? Well, I, I follow Apollos. And they hung on his every word. There were those that said, I'm with Cephas. And they hung on every, every one of his words. Now, theologically, there wasn't probably a nickel's worth of difference between these three guys, but they didn't stop each other, uh, the followers, really, of, of really what, what I call manufacturing a difference. Sometimes people will just want to agitate or try to upset things or whatever. And so when, when someone from Paul's group was teaching, do you think the others in the other groups had any respect for what Paul said? Probably not. Do you think they were willing to listen? and ready to learn when someone from the other side got up to speak? Probably not. Now, I have never, ever been in a church where there's been division over, uh, among the membership over the various speakers. But I have been in churches where there's been division over the various worship leaders and differing styles of music. And I've heard people on both sides of the debate say, well, I just can't worship with that kind of music. I say this because this is a lesson that many have learned and will need to learn. And there are different ways of looking at it, uh, of doing it or whatever. Uh, an illustration, how many of you, uh, when traveling or on vacation, 
and you're visiting a church, maybe you found a, a, maybe a, a pastor that you're, that's well-liked, maybe it's on, it's on TV, maybe it's fun to hear him speak because he's funny, he's brilliant, he's thought-provoking, and so on vacation you decide to attend that church. But to your dismay, you discover after the service begins that this quote-unquote celebrity pastor is also on vacation, and you have uh, one of the associates that are going to be speaking that morning, and, and you can tell that he's not near the, the gifted communicator as the lead pastor. What's more, as the associate stumbled his way through his introduction, you perceived he was coming from a place theologically that was not exactly in line with your own particular level of enlightenment. So you crossed your arms, you settle in, you prepare yourself to pout and let your mind wander hither and yon for the next 30 minutes or so. You've even picked up your cell phone, mine's in the office, I'd haul out right now. You're checking what's new on Instagram, you're checking on you know, any, any new tweets, you're checking on Facebook, and then you feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's telling you, you know, there's a word for you today if you'll listen. And so you tune in, and guess what? God did speak to you that morning more than once. I mean, here you were, you had prepared yourself not to listen you kind of develop this little attitude, and to be blunt, it's nothing more than spiritual immaturity. Pastor Tim did a great job last week. I listened to I always listen to the messages. What I'm saying is, we need to get past the idea, church, that there are different people who have a different perspective and, and uh, it's okay to be challenged in your thinking. I'm not talking about areas of sin. I'm not talking about the world and, and this and that and everything else, all right? But simply get past the idea that those who aren't a part of our clique are somehow the enemy, you know? You, you've watched football games. I'm sure you have. We had the sports theme yesterday, getting the game with the men and I'm there, and it's like, I'm not a sports person. I used to be, but I'm not a sports person, and kind of like with you, Mary Lou. But uh, most, most of the team players in a, football, in a football game, after the game's over, they'll high-five each other. They'll pat each other behind or whatever. They'll, some might get in the 50-yard line to pray or whatever. If there's a fight, it's usually not the players but the fans who instigate that the ones who had exactly nothing to do with the outcome of the game. But, uh, but the players themselves, for the most part, are friends. And, uh, and the fans tend to be enemies once in a while. Well, this attitude of us and them doesn't come from an emotionally superior or spiritually superior place. It comes from a place of, of immaturity and infancy. And it has no place really among those who desire to grow into the fullness of their faith. Bottom line is this, if we want to put an end to our spiritual self-sabotage, then let's not exclude others unnecessarily. I'm simply saying, be willing, be willing to at least listen and maybe even learn from others that you might not consider to be those that, that will speak into your life. Here, here's my bottom line on this, and the boys and girls are gone, but it's biblical. If God can use a jackass... To speak to Balaam, he can use anyone or anything to speak to you or me. And I'll use the word donkey for the NIV people. 
And the King James is actually, there's no Jack in there. Number three, let's remember our place in this process. Pause, Ten Commandments out in the wall out there. When we first got those years ago, the kids, look, there's a swear word in the Ten Commandments. Coveting, coveting thy neighbor's donkey. <laughs> it's out there. King James. Let's remember our place in this process. Paul talks about his work and the, and the work of Apollos. What are we? He says, we are only servants. We are only servants. He says, one planted the seed, another one watered. Each did their part, but it was God who caused the growth. God brings the increase. At times, Paul may have said, yeah, follow me, for I follow Christ. But Paul did not consider himself to be anybody's spiritual guru. Neither did Cephas or Apollos, I have no doubt. Now, they all had their work to do in the kingdom. They each played their role, and they trusted God to bring everything together. The results were for his glory, not for theirs. The results are always for God's glory, not for ours. And so Paul says this in verse 9, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You're God's building. You're God's project, if you will. In week one of this series, I talked about how you are a work in progress. And I quoted Paul as he was writing the letter to the church in Philippi, where he says in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1, And he who began a good work in you will, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is working in us. Friends, let God continue to work in your life. I mean, your spiritual growth isn't dependent upon Paul. It's not dependent upon Apollos. It's not dependent upon Cephas or this preacher or that evangelist. Your spiritual growth is dependent on you. I've heard over the years, well, we're leaving, Pastor, because we're just not getting fed. It's like, well, you never belly up to the table. I never see you in service. You've never been in Sunday school. You've never been in Wednesday night service. No wonder you're not getting fed, because you're not feeding yourself at home, evidently, either. You know what I'm saying? Your level of worship isn't determined by any st song, style, or any singer, for that matter. In the last three weeks, four weeks, you've had three different worship leaders. Vacations. It's wonderful. Good having you back. But do you realize that the first time law first mentioned, the first time the word worship is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 22, and it has nothing to do with, it, with a reference to music, to a song, a style of music, or whatever. The first mention of worship is in Genesis 22 when it talks about Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham said to his servants, we will worship, there it is, and then we, speaking of him and Isaac, will come back to you. It was a statement of faith. Worship there in Genesis 22, law of first mention, had nothing to do with music, style of music, instruments, whatever. It had everything to do with obedience. Worshiping God is obeying God. Obedience. What it all comes down to is this. God is the one who causes the growth. We do our part. We're just servants. God brings the increase. That also tells me when we take our eyes off God 
and look toward anything else, be it a preacher, an evangelist, a teacher, a politician, a political pundit, a singer, an author, a denomination, on and on. When we give any human person or any human endeavor God's rightful place in our lives, we sabotage our spiritual growth and we're going to be stalled in infancy. That's what, that's what the third chapter is about here in verses 1 through 9. Always remember that our role in this process is to yield ourselves to God. Are you yielded to God? To be His field, His building, His project, so that He can nurture in us a nature that is more like His Son, Jesus Christ. That's God's, that's God's goal. You know what that means? There's going to be times when God sends a Paul to you. But he's also going to send Apollos and Cephas and James and John. And if you need encouragement, Barnabas, maybe a Timothy. And we welcome each one because God uses all of them to do his work in your life. It's his work for his glory, for his honor. It's his work. And so we have to yield to what he's doing in our lives. Let me wrap this up. Paul aims this passage of Scripture at those who are still being fed milk because they're not ready yet for solid food. Here's the thing. They're not ready yet because they don't want to be ready. They would rather bicker among themselves and experience the fullness of God's blessing in their life, in their church. They'd rather be part of their little cult of personality than participate in the power of God and the moving of God. And Paul says, guys, you are still infants today. And it's by your own choice. Friends, I think the message to us today is pretty clear. If not to you, it is to me, and I'll try to relate that to you. Every time we practice pettiness, every time we create a major conflict over a minor matter, we sabotage the opportunity for our spiritual growth. Every time we put on the airs of elitism, every time we act condescendingly toward those who aren't part of our clique, we sabotage our opportunity for spiritual growth. And any time we build a spiritual foundation on anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, we sabotage our opportunity for spiritual growth. What I'm saying is this. Let's do away. Let's do away with the self-sabotage. And instead, may you and I fully embrace God's work in our lives as God continues to grow us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Pastor Jim, if you want to come. There's a, there's a PowerPoint slide and I want you to say this with me. Say it out loud. Say it with me. I am God's project. Say it with me again. I am God's project, His work in progress. I welcome every individual He sends my way to be more like Him. He sends my way to help me be more like Him. See, God wants you to move forward in your spiritual walk. And my question to you this morning is very simple, and it's very pointed. My question is this. Are you, where I started, a natural man 
or a spiritual man. And if you say, well, I'm a spiritual man, are you maturing or are you worldly? So are you natural or spiritual? And if spiritual, are you maturing, growing up in your faith, moving on to discipleship, or are you worldly, carnal, fleshly, a mere man? Let's stand to our feet. We'll close in prayer.